want to say I love that prayer, and I like the comment that Ryan made earlier in the service, too, where he said, you know, we haven't come here to tell God what to say. And I thought, wow, that's true. And, re- and frankly, the whole of the worship service moves us to that real- realization and really to this moment where we open his word and he speaks to us. And so we're going to do that this morning, and we're going to continue with our study of the Gospel of Luke. And as we do that, we come now to the night upon which Jesus is betrayed. And so the Last Supper has been concluded. The sun in the sky has gone down in the west, and physical darkness has completely enveloped this land in which this story takes place. But not just physical darkness, because the last words of Jesus that we're going to look at today make it very, very clear that spiritual darkness, too, has completely Envelop this land in which the story that we're going to look at today takes place. It begins and ends in darkness, and it is dark everywhere in between. So I want to begin, before we even look at the story, and I want to ask you, what is it that lives, and not just lives, but thrives in darkness? Because if you're over the age of 12 and I actually gave you some time to think about this, you'd figure it out, okay? The answer is temptation. Temptation lives and thrives in darkness, and that is true literally. It's one of the reasons why these establishments of temptation are places that we typically go to at night. And they have unlit parking lots, generally speaking, behind the building so we can park in obscurity and walk to the door in the darkness. And then when you throw the door open, are you blinded by the light inside, guys? No. Your eyes adjust to the darkness. Darkness and temptation go together. Temptation lives and thrives in darkness. It's true figuratively too. Temptation lives and thrives, for example, in the darkness of fear and anxiety. And what's the temptation? It's to medicate in sinful ways, in self-destructive ways. Temptation lives and thrives in the darkness of, of depression and despair in which we go looking for light and things that we ought not to go looking for light in and things that actually bring us into further darkness. It lives and it thrives in the darkness of idleness when we're just frankly bored. We don't know what to do with ourselves. Nothing stimulates us anymore. We're looking for anything to bring some excitement into our lives, some entertainment into our lives, some whatever in our lives. Watch out. Temptation lives there. It lives in the darkness of loneliness that we're tempted to fill up in ways that are inappropriate. It lives in the darkness also of insecurity, in which we go out looking for validation in people and things that we're not to look to for validation. You see how this works? It lives even in the darkness of success and power, which engender pride in us, and we're all prideful. The ego is real. And suddenly we start thinking, you know, we're kind of a little bit better than everybody else and maybe above everybody else and maybe even above the law that applies to everybody else. We start thinking that we're going to be the first people in all of history to get away with a particular circumstance. Surely we won't get caught. Surely nobody will be harmed by this. No, not so surely. And we start feeling entitled to people and things that, you know, in truth, we're we're just not entitled to. Temptation lives and thrives in the darkness of hurt and betrayal. And here's what we do with it. Here's the temptation. Oh, you've hurt and betrayed me. Here's now what I'm going to do. I'm going to justify my hurt and betrayal of you by your hurt and betrayal of me. I'm going to multiply sin upon sin. I'm going to justify my sin by your sin or worse. I'm going to live the whole of my life in some kind of sinful dysfunction so that I can blame it on you. All of my problems are traced back to this person. Listen. We all deal with our wounds and issues, but at some point in our lives, we've got to own the fact that, you know what? It's time for me to take ownership of this and deal with it. The temptation is not to, and to let it continue to run its ruinous pattern in our lives, the lives of our family members. It's a crazy thing, temptation. 
Temptation lives and thrives in addiction and materialism, which is just really another form of idolatry. It's, it's a false worship. So you get the idea. Temptation lives and it thrives in, in darkness. And so then the question that we're going to come to this dark story with is, all right, well, then what do we do with temptation? And maybe you're thinking, all right, I think I know the answer to this. You avoid the darkness. And that's a very good and biblical answer. You know, I mean, as I thought about that, I thought about the Joseph story. Here's this Joseph, and he's this handsome young man, you know, and then there's this beautiful young woman who also happens to be the wife of some other guy who keeps trying to seduce him. And you know the story, finally, it kind of, you know, climaxes in this story in which he gets everybody out of the house, and he comes over. And when Joseph realizes what's going on, what does he do? He runs. He hits the door at about 50 miles an hour. He flees from the darkness. Really great idea, but what about when you can't flee from the darkness? What about where there's no door to run out of? What about when there's no light to be found? Well, then you do what Jesus does in this story. And you do what he instructs his disciples to do, but they don't do in this story. You pray, and it just sounds so easy, doesn't it? I wrote that down this week, and I thought, wow. I kind of figured some of you would go, oh, look at the time. You know, we're done, right? I mean, that's it? That's all you got? Yep. That's all I got. You pray. And you pray the way that Jesus prayed. And you want to argue with that. You want to say, yeah, but that's Jesus, and I'm not Jesus. And that. So what makes you think your prayer will be less effective? You're not Jesus, but notice... This theme of prayer, it's run all the way through the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the primary themes. Jesus' disciples see how Jesus prays. They see the authenticity of it. They see the power that comes from it. They see this life in communion with God that is just so evident in his life of prayer that they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what does he say? He says, oh, that's ridiculous. You guys aren't me. Why would I do that? No, he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, this series of things to pray about. And one of those things is lead us not into what? Temptation. My goodness, it sounds like this might be a remedy for temptation. And it is. Notice the way that Jesus prays today. Notice the posture of his prayer. Notice the humility of it. Notice the intensity of it. And then compare that with your own prayer life. Jesus is not, you know, sitting down at the dinner table and saying, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food, amen. As I've said in the past, it doesn't even rhyme, it's offensive. It's crazy, it gives me a rash every time I say it. It's like I have to force myself. Just, ugh! Now I lay me down to sleep, no, no, no. No, He gets down on His face, His knees before Almighty God, and He pours out His heart and His soul, and He does not rise until He has defeated both temptation and the tempter Himself, but not His disciples, as we'll see. The answer to prayer, I mean, the answer to temptation, guys, is prayer. And we're going to see that as we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39, where Luke says this, it says, and Jesus came out, meaning out of the upper room and out into the darkness. Again, the sun has set, the land is full of darkness, and now he walks out into it. That's the idea. And Jesus went, as was his custom. Why does that matter? Because all of his disciples, including Judas Iscariot, knew this custom. He came out of the upper room 
out into the darkness. And then he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And specifically, we learn from the Gospel of John, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples of Jesus followed him there to this Garden of Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means literally oil press. And so what we're dealing with here is a privately owned, almost certainly enclosed, it was walled with a gate is the idea, grove full of olive trees that contained an oil press. Why? Because they made olive oil from the olives. That's the point. But it was the private camping ground of Jesus. It was his custom to go there. Now, why did he have to camp out? I mean, it just seems kind of weird, you know, the Son of God sleeping out under the stars, because it was the Passover, guys. And everybody went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And unless you were fabulously wealthy or you had relatives in town, there was nowhere to stay. So guess what everyone did? They camped out. And whoever owned this private grove was obviously enamored with Christ because it seems as though he placed it at the disposal of Jesus and his disciples so that every time they came to town, they had a private campground. And you can, you know, understand the allure of that. I mean, everywhere that Jesus went, people were asking him for things. Can you heal this? Can you fix this? Can you tell me what to do with this? I mean, my goodness, how draining that had to be for him. And everywhere he went throughout Jerusalem, he was followed by the crowds, was he not? Until the nighttime came, when every night he and his disciples, as was his custom, would go through the gate of the private olive grove, get away from the crowds, and find peace and find rest. Now, why is that significant? Because as we've already seen from a prior story, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the religious leaders of Israel who were trying to figure out when and where they could arrest Jesus away from the crowds. And he said, I think I've got an answer for that. Because Jesus has a custom. And I can take you there in return for money. And even though Jesus knows all of this is happening, he goes there anyway. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, time and again, as leading up to this story, we've seen the omniscience of Jesus. The fact that he knows everything about everyone. We know for a fact that he knows everything about this deal. He knows that Judas has betrayed him. He knows the deal that's been negotiated. He knows when they are coming, and he knows where they will come to get him. And he goes there nevertheless. However, having now arrived in this narrative, they haven't shown up yet. There's a little bit of time. And so I want you to think for a minute about what the temptation was for Jesus in the midst of that incredibly dark, physically but even more so spiritually night, because I, I think that it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, the, you know, the temptation is to cut and run, man. The temptation is for the first time ever for the son to look at the father and to say, hey, you know what? Infinite suffering? It's not really something I'm interested in. I have followed you faithfully all of eternity and throughout the course of my life here as a human being, and here's the deal. Now that I am face to face with the actual cost of what your will is for me, of what my mission is going to require of me, Forget about the physical suffering. It's the suffering of the soul that's so devastating and intimidating. I don't know that I'm interested. Our Lord suffered not just of body. That was horrifying enough. But he suffered of soul. And that is by far the more difficult. Look, the soul has the capacity to suffer. And its capacities are so much greater than that of the body. So the temptation is to cut and run. And what does Jesus do? He prays. 
It says in verse 40 that when Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, what? Pray. And again, why? Because here's the connection, and it's obvious. That you may not enter into temptation. For as we'll see in a second, these guys too are going to face some temptation, but because they don't pray, unlike Jesus, they fail. They succumb to it. And so then having preached his very short sermon on prayer, Jesus then withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down, here we go, in humility and in agony, we'll see in a second, and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, then remove this cup of suffering from me. But now notice his resolve. Notice his commitment to pay the price of obedience to the Father, no matter what that may be, and he knows clearly what it is. And so then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then we read, and I love this, and just think it's awesome. It says, and there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him in his hour of darkness and temptation. I read that this week in particular, and I thought, my goodness, you know what? That is so like the Lord to do something just like that. And by that, I don't mean to send you a literal angel who appears to you. But it's very much like the Lord to send you a messenger. And the word angel means messenger. It's very much like the Lord to send you some kind of a message. It is very much like the Lord to appear through someone or something in your life, in your moment of crisis, in that time and darkness when you're tempted to run from God as opposed to to Him. Where you're tempted to say, you know what, I I think I'm going to reject this and just kind of sneak off under the obscurity of darkness here and go live out my life in assumed safety instead of embracing it as the will of God for you and taking the cup that he has for you and drinking it to the full. It is so much like the Lord to do something like that. I'll give you an example. A week ago Friday, Beth and I and our son TJ uh, were driving up to Tallahassee to see our oldest daughter. She's a junior up at Florida State. And, um, and the other girls were off on a spiritual retreat, so we just took him we headed up and we got out of town, you know, Friday morning and we're sort of racing along because everything for me, if it's a car trip, is a race. I don't know if that's true for you. It's not a, not a journey, it's a mission and I'm racing everyone. So I'm racing, she's riding and at some point, like Orlando, she starts finally listening to all the voicemails that had collected, you know, over the course of the morning. And as she's listening to this voicemail, I see her go, and she grabs her chest like this, and then about three seconds later, tears start rolling down her eyes. And this is a marathon voicemail, incidentally, and I'm going, holy cow, what in the world is she listening to? And I mean, I can see she's breathing, and like panic is setting in. And because I'm racing by everybody anyway, I'm passing this truck in the midst of this panic, and I don't even know what it's about. And I look at the side of this truck, this huge semi-truck. I've never seen anything like this. I've seen it on billboards, but never on a truck. And it says, courage is just faith that has said its prayers, little colon, God. On the truck! I don't even know what she's experiencing, but she's freaking out. So I slap her on the leg. I'm like, look at the truck. Look, look at the truck. You're supposed to read this right now. Look at the truck. She's reading it, looking at me like, holy cow, what in the world? You know, she's writing it down, you know. It was unbelievable. What are the odds of that? God puts that truck there. He gives you a sinfully speed demon husband who he knows will pass it. (laughs) Think about that. It was a voicemail from her stepmother and her father who is 83. Uh, He's a retired physician. Um, he's not a believer, and he had had a stroke the previous night. And she said words that we've never heard, you need to come up here. So we're on the turnpike. 
And she's freaking out because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And he doesn't know the Lord. So, you know, we said, well, I, I think you got a message from God on the truck. I think we need to take that to heart. Courage is just faith that has said its prayers. We've been praying for this guy and his wife for decades. And we're going to pray right now. And we're going to rent a car in Gainesville, and you're going to drive up to Asheville, and I'm going to go to Tallahassee because I don't know how long you're going to need to be gone, and I need to be back. And TJ has school, and so that's what we did. She went one way, and I went the other way, and she came back this past Friday. But it became really, really clear that that was the message for her. She needed courage that was faith that had said its prayers to face that moment of panic. To say, Lord, am I going to trust you with my dad in this? You know the situation. She needed courage to drive up there and say things to him that frankly have needed to be said, and I'm not kidding, for 50 years. And got said this week. She needed courage to share the gospel with her dad and and with her stepmom, both of whom think we are, and I quote, delusional. Takes a lot of courage. It's intimidating. A lot easier to talk to strangers, isn't it? She needed that message, and it wasn't the only message she got, which is also pretty cool. Like the the next day she got there that night and spent the night listening to him breathing and stop breathing and then wake up and and start breathing, you know? Scary. But the next day the paramedic came and said, are you the daughter of... And she said, yeah. Oh, I was the paramedic that brought him in. How's he doing? And he actually made, by the way, a a really, frankly, miraculous recovery. He's in a rehab center now. But she said, well, he's, he's doing okay. And he said, oh, good to hear because I, I was praying for him. The paramedic made a special visit to let her know, I guess, that he was praying for her dad. That's weird. The treating physician, before he discharged him to the rehab center, says to her father, who has been a doctor since like, you know, Moses, okay? <laughs> he says to him, Well, before I go, do you mind if I pray for you? Her dad said, well, never heard that before. But, you know, all right. And he did. Beth was off running errands and stuff like that for them while she was up there and helping to take care of her stepmother too. While she was away from her dad, one of those moments, uh, a little lady came to the church, or came to the hospital from some church apparently, walks into the room, shares the gospel with her dad, and leaves him a tract. Are you kidding me? This is crazy. I mean, maybe this just happens in Asheville. I don't know, but I feel like you'd get arrested here. That's crazy. Message after message after message after message. For those with the eyes and the ears of faith to see and to hear those messages. You ever get a message? I can't tell you how many sermons I've done. 14 years worth of sermons. So very many times, including already once today, somebody came up to me and said, that was for me. I'm thinking, I don't even know your name. Really, like, never met you before in my life. It was for you. And it was from the Lord to you. How awesome is it in a moment like that, to realize that the God of the universe knows who you are, much less where you are, much less what you're going through, and then designs something perfect for you. 
The Bible speaks of the mercies of God, but it speaks of them as tender mercies. What a privilege it is to get a message like that or to be the messenger. So then again, we read that there came or there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him in the midst of this crisis of faith. And he clearly needed that strengthening because look what it says next. Luke, himself a physician, says, In being in agony, Jesus prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, which really speaks to the intensity of this moment for Jesus, because what Luke appears at least to be describing is a condition called hematohydrosis. It's a condition in which the blood capillaries, the vessels around your sweat glands, begin to rupture. And so instead of exuding sweat, you exude blood. You sweat blood in some sense, or at least that's what appears to be happening. And there are documented cases of this, but they're very, very rare, and they only occur under the most extreme physical and emotional stress. So there are guys who are on death row who have been waiting execution, and, you know, like tomorrow is their day in the electric chair who have sweated blood. So fearful at the thought of meeting their maker. There are sailors who have been out on ships that have been going down, and they thought, hey, this is it. We're going to die who have sweated blood. There's a documented case of a woman who, in fear of being raped, sweated blood. There's a documented case of a child who lived in London during World War II, and when the air raid sirens would come off, uh, go off saying, hey, you know, the Germans are about to bomb us again, would sweat blood every time. Very, very rare. Very, very intense. Luke says, in being in agony, Jesus prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, the idea being having gained victory over the temptation to flee, to say, no, this is too expensive. This is what your will is, it's too much for me. And over the tempter himself as well. Jesus then came to the disciples whom he had previously commanded to pray and found them, what, sleeping (laughs) for sorrow. And instead, and so he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. And again, why? There's an urgency to this. So that you may not enter into temptation. And you say, all right, well, then what's the temptation that these guys face? I mean, you get Jesus' temptation, I think, at this point. But what about them? Well, let's just keep reading. And watch the difference between the prayed-up Jesus and the not-prayed-up-at-all disciples of Jesus. Because in that difference, you see the temptation and how each responds. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve disciples, the guy who had brokered the deal to provide the religious leaders with the time and place, apart from the crowds, at which they could arrest the Lord and take him into custody and return for money was leading them. So what's the temptation, just quickly, that Judas succumbs to in the darkness of his materialism and idolatry? It's the temptation to look at the Lord and to look at money and to say, nope, I'm going with, the, I'm going with money and not you. And I think one of the mistakes that we make is we go, yeah, and that's Judas, you know, and obviously I'm not Judas, so. But we all have a little Judas in us. Look at what the Lord says about money. Ask yourself what you're doing. And the beautiful thing is you can count it up and, you know, the answer is pretty objectively clear. And realize that maybe you too need to deal with this. Oh, the cost of obedience to you in this area of my life, that will bring me freedom as opposed to the slavery of materialism. Is this, what are you choosing? 
think it through, and compare it with Jesus Christ, who forsook all of the wealth and privilege of heaven to enter into this world as a peasant Jewish slave of the Roman Empire, a man with nothing, nowhere even to lay his head, he says, and who then gave away his life as a sacrifice so that you through faith in him might be made rich, as the Apostle Paul says. So anyway, while Jesus, or Jesus is still speaking to his disciples and saying, guys, wake up and pray. There came a crowd. The man called Judas, one of the twelve disciples, was leading them. And then we read that Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss Jesus, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Answer, well, yeah. And now notice what the other disciples do. It says, when those who were around him saw what would follow... They realized what was happening here. John tells us that they came with a cohort of soldiers. That's two to six hundred soldiers. That's not a few people. Plus all the chief priests and all of that stuff. Oh, and then of course Judas. Incidentally, they come in the nighttime and they come in a world full of darkness because there's no electricity. They don't have street lights or any of these other things. And if you've ever been to the Garden of Gethsemane, if you haven't and can afford to go, you should go. Because you can stand at least approximately where this happens. And what you realize is you understand where they're coming from and you can look and see and understand that at night, two to six hundred soldiers, chief priests, scribes, and Judas, coming with torches, John says, and with weapons that are shiny and metal, you'd be able to watch them coming. The Lord surely saw them as he's waking up his disciples and going, hurry up and pray! that you don't enter into temptation. Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go to the gate and go, hey, who are you guys looking for? Oh, Jesus. Oh, okay. So long hair, beard, flowing robe, says verily, verily a lot. Yeah, he went that way. He doesn't do that. He waits. He knows what's coming. But his disciples react differently. It says, when those who were around him, the disciples, saw what would follow. I mean, these guys with all these weapons have not come to kiss Jesus, okay? They understood why they had come. They said to Jesus, who had already told them on numerous occasions, hey guys, here's the thing, my mission requires me to suffer and die. It requires me to be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes to submit to their suffering and death, to be buried and then raised again from the dead on the third day. That's my mission. He's not been unclear about this, and he has said it more than once. Notwithstanding that, in the moment, they say, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Lord, should we take up the weapons of this world and use it to fight against the men whom you've already told us that you're supposed to submit to? Who, ironically, God is going to take the wickedness of And use it for good. Should we do that, Jesus? Because, frankly, we don't like your mission. We don't really understand it completely. And the popular conception, including ours, is that the Messiah, i.e. you, would not come to deliver us from sin and death so much as from Rome. Look, Lord, here's what we really want you to do for us. And I chose this language intentionally, okay? We want our nation back. Socially, morally, and politically. And if these guys take you and put you to death, it's not going to happen. So should we take up the weapons of this world, the same ones that the world uses, and then fight against the world 
with those weapons. And Peter doesn't even wait for the answer. We know that it's Peter because John tells us, it says, so one of them, that's Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But then the prayed up Jesus said to his prayerless disciples, no more of this. And he touched this man's ear and healed him. You see the difference? Jesus walks over and willingly hands himself over to these guys, while his disciples, on the other hand, are going, whoa, 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 this doesn't fit with our plans for you, Lord, or what we're hoping at least that you'll do for us. And so they're taking out their little swords and chopping off ears. And again, why is that? Because they've missed the mission. They have failed to remember that the mission that Jesus came is is not to to rescue or to deliver any nation, including the nation-state of Israel, from oppressive leadership. He came to deliver His people from sin and death, and then from people from every nation, every language, every tribe, every culture, every race, and every age of man to compose, to put together a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to use the language of the New Testament, that is entirely new and that will one day inhabit an entirely new heaven and an entirely new earth. And the only way to accomplish that mission was through His suffering and death. And even though His disciples should have known that, and even though we should also know that, I fear that like them, we often forget it. And I fear that most intensely during election seasons. And just so that I'm not misunderstood, I'm not saying that you know, we shouldn't stand for truth. I would say that it would be wrong for us not to graciously, humbly, selflessly stand for truth. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with voting. And I would say that it would be wrong not to vote and to vote Christianly, to remember that Jesus owns your vote as well as everything else about you. But I'm going to say plainly that there is something very wrong with being combative, with being ugly, and with becoming a slanderer. Very, very, very wrong. And it ought not to be found in God's people. I was sitting in a light on Federal Highway this past week at Oakland Park Boulevard, and I'm I'm reading the bumper stickers on somebody's car. I don't know who it is, and I'm praying, oh dear God, that it isn't yours. So, um, (laughs) please, Lord, not not that. If it is, please know that I don't know it. Okay, every time I talk about a bumper sticker, I think, well, this is a thin twig that I've walked out onto, but. But as I'm reading the stickers, one of the stickers said, not even Bill wants Hillary. Think about that. So now I really regret saying it because now I have to say that there is absolutely not one thing funny about that. That is cruel. To take the infidelity of a woman's husband and publicly to mock her by putting it on your car and driving all over our city is cruel irrespective of what you think of her as a person or a politician. It's irrelevant. It ought not to be found amongst God's people. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Please explain to me which one of the fruit of the Spirit motivates you to put that bumper sticker on your car or anything like it. Or to publish an email, anything like that. Or to make a statement anything like that. That is not light. That is darkness. 
And my fear every election season, and I fear it because I see it, I hear it, I read it, and I feel it in my own heart, is that we will forget what Jesus and thus our real mission is. That we will forget where our true and primary citizenship is. And to whom our allegiance is. And the kingdom that before any other kingdom we are to be building. And we'll pull out our little swords. The same swords that everybody else is using all around us who don't claim Christ as their king and as their savior and who know nothing of that citizenship and we'll start hacking people's ears off while our savior all around us is putting ears back on heads and saying things like, guys, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jews. But he rebuked them for doing that. Salt and light looks different. So then what's the temptation that these guys give into? They give into the temptation to see Jesus as the means to their end as opposed to seeing themselves as the means to his end. And what is his end? Because it's not to save any nation, and I'm for saving the nation. His end is to raise up disciples in my house and in yours, in my neighborhood and in yours. Where I work and where you work, where my kids go to school and where your kids go to school, in this community, in this city, in our state, in our country, and all around this world. The temptation, and we all face it in just different ways, is to try to make Jesus, try to get Jesus to be the means to our end, be that of saving back, you know, saving our nation and taking it back, or fixing our marriage, or fixing our finances, or healing our body, or that of someone else. We're the means to his end. We belong to him. So Jesus heals this man's ear and then he rebukes his disciples sharply. And then in verse 52, it says, And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But instead you waited until I was alone and you came out under the cloak of darkness to do your dirty work. What is he doing? He's pointing out their duplicity. He's shining a light on their hearts and revealing the darkness within it. He does the same thing for us, to call us to repentance. It's a good thing that he does. And so then he concludes with this. He says, but this is your hour. And I love that. And here's why. Because an hour has a very clearly defined beginning and end. An hour ends, and it gives way to a new hour. That's the idea. Oh, this is your hour. You'll have your way. But a new hour is coming. He says, this is your hour, and what? The power of darkness. And what lives, and not just lives, but thrives in the darkness? Temptation. And what's the answer? Okay, run when you can. Get out of it, stay out of it. But when you can't. It is humble, purposeful, face down, on your knees, agonizing prayer by which you come into the presence of the God who is himself described as light and in whom we are told there is absolutely no darkness whatsoever. So let me ask you, number one, what are the temptations that you're facing now? And are they related to your desire to avoid suffering and keep comfort, you know, or to gain or to keep money? Hey, Lord, that's part's too expensive about following you. 
Is it the temptation to try to use Jesus as a means to your end? Or maybe the way that we could just all ask it, since we all do it, is how am I trying to use Jesus as a means to my end? Because if you look hard enough, you'll find it. Secondly, what are you doing to fight your temptations? Because the Lord calls you to fight on your knees if you can't run out of it. And when you do, look, sometimes He'll remove that cup of suffering. But other times as with my wife, and as far more poignantly with the Lord, He won't remove it, but He'll send you His messengers, His angels, if you will, if you have the eyes and ears to see and hear them. Thirdly, what messengers or messages from God are you ignoring in the midst of your temptation? And we all know when we're doing it. You know, we're in love with this person and they're Mr. or Mrs. Right, or so we think, or really want to believe. Just one example. And like all the significant people in our life are going, hey, um, I don't know how to say this, but, uh, you know, are you sure? Mom and dad are not really on board. Friends are not on board. Oh, but he loves me. Okay. God is sending you messengers to save you. (laughs) Listen to the messages. It's His grace in your life. It's His rescue. Fourthly, and finally, who could or should you be a messenger to God of God to today? Who is it that is in your life that, you know what, is in darkness? And you know it. And you have the privilege and the opportunity to speak into it. To bring some of the wisdom of the Lord to them. Or maybe just to come alongside and say, hey, How can I listen to you? How can I help? How can I understand? What can I do? What a privilege it is to be the messenger of the Lord. And what a privilege it is to know that God knows who you are, where you are, what you're going through, and is able to uniquely design a message just for you. Very, very cool stuff. So let's pray. Father, we do thank You for our Savior and for our Lord, for the King of heaven who forsook all the privileges thereof, who entered into this world as a peasant Jewish slave of the Roman Empire, a Galilean Jew not even respected amongst His own people, a man who had nothing of appearance by which He would be advanced, just an average-looking guy, and yet the Son of God, Deity clothed in humanity. Lord, what that says of your humility, what that says of your character, what that says of your approachability, what that says of your love and care. You entered into a world full of undeserving people that in love you might lay down your life, pouring yourself out utterly, impoverishing yourself completely, that we through faith in you might be forgiven and made new, and made clean, and made, in the words of the Apostle Paul, rich in all the ways that matter, spiritually and for all of eternity. We thank You, Lord, and we pray that we might learn from His example of prayer today, that You might deliver us from darkness, that You might provide us with doors to run out of, but but when You don't, even when You do, that we might find ourselves sincerely and authentically, pouring our hearts out to You in prayer. Not little prayers we pray because we know we're supposed to, 
but really and truly pouring out our heart, Lord, and refusing to leave our knees until we overcome the temptations found in the darkness that you yourself have ordained for us. We pray all these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.